Hi friends. This episode is a bit special. It's one of the first episodes we recorded back when we were still getting our bearings, and we've been waiting for the right moment to release it. Ash Wednesday seems like that moment. We talk with Mark Werner, who is Randy's spiritual director. I guess you could say he's kind of a pastor to our pastor. Mark guides us through a tour of contemplative spirituality, spiritual direction, and even leads us in a meditative centering practice. We touch on several other topics as well, including the Enneagram, experiencing God, and the Christian's relationship to power. We're breaking our normal bi-weekly schedule to get this to you as we begin Lent, because we think it can minister to you the way Mark ministered to us that night last summer. We'll return to our normal schedule next week. Thanks for listening. Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. The podcast where we mix a sometimes weird but always delicious cocktail of theology, philosophy, and spirituality. We're so excited you joined us today for this episode of A Pastor and Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. Today, we are going to take a walk down the road of contemplative spirituality. That's a spiritual journey that too few of us take and I'm excited to share a guest with you. But before we get into that, Kyle, what are we drinking? Well, today I have another treat for you guys. So this is another instantiation of the Eagle Park Brewing Company Slushy series. What a treat. Uh, so for the I know, for the uh, the beer snobs in the audience, you either hate these things or you love them. Uh, so this one is called Tropical Slush. It is a mixture of mango, passion fruit, and pineapple. And this is another one of those that has so much fruit in it, you have to roll it. So we're going to roll our cans before we open them here. Rolling as we speak. Rolls off the top of your desk there. I never thought I'd see the day where I rolled my damn beer. <laughs> but here I am. Yeah, only, only for these flushes is that actually important. So this one is going to pour a little bit thinner than the one we had before. It's going to be lighter in color, so you see a nice golden kind of mango color. Elliot's spilling all over the studio here. It looks like a wheat ale. It does. It looks like a wheat or a sour. Yeah, so it is a sour base, sour ale, which most of these slushies are. They're usually some kind of Berliner Weiss or sour or something like that. Then with thousands of pounds of fruit just dumped in. So that's what we're getting here. All right. We'd love to hear from any listeners who are slushy fans. I, I'll bet there's like four out there. <laughs> it's more than you think. Uh, <laughs> I won't name any names, but there there are several breweries who specialize in this style that uh, their beers sell for shocking amounts of money on the secondary beer market. Not that I would know anything about the secondary <laughs> beer market because that's not legal, um, but I've heard stories. All right. So these, these uh, slushy beers tend to be lower ABV. Often they don't even put it on the can, so this one doesn't even have the ABV on the can. Uh, but usually less than 8% and sometimes as low as 4 or 5%. But I'm not certain about this one. This is something that people that don't like beer really might still enjoy. So you could easily get a four-pack and give some to your spouse who isn't into beer and they'll probably like it. Well, Eagle Park, you rocked it. This is delicious tropical slush. Highly, highly recommend it. I'll be getting some. All right, gentlemen. Prost. Mm-hmm. Well, friends, I'm so excited to introduce to you a person who has become really just a, a beautiful part of my life. He is my spiritual director, has been for about the last year, and uh, Mark is a brilliant, brilliant person and trusted friend. So, Mark Warner, welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. <laughs> I, like, I like the title, and I'm glad <laughs> to be here. Mark, can you just tell us maybe your role right now? First of all, my role is that I seek to accompany or companion with those who are in ministry, particularly in the role of spiritual direction. Been doing that for about seven years now. Brilliant. And can you tell us a bit about your journey? What, where were you vocationally? Where you start? And how did you get into being a spiritual director for people in ministry? Yeah, I've been in ministry thirty-six years. Wow. Uh, 11 of those years were on staff with crew, and then 21 years as a, a pastor in a local church here in the area, and, the, and then the last few years in my role within Grace Bridge Alliance as spiritual director. 
what led me into the vocation that I'm in right now was actually a, a prolonged period of, of spiritual dryness, or as, as, as some refer to it now, as, as a dark night, a dark night of the soul where I'm crying out to God, wondering if God is even there, because that level of dryness for me, I, I was no longer experiencing God as I, as I thought I had in the past. Can I interrupt you quick, Mark? How long did that last, that season of that dark night of the soul dryness? Yeah, I think uh, about from, from my early 40s until uh, my about 47, 48. Wow. So a period of about seven years of, of struggling to do the things that I felt called to, but doing it from what for me felt like a very dry or an even, even empty place at times. And and that's the hard part about sometimes when you are in ministry is you're called to function in a way that gives spiritually, even at a time when you may not be terribly filled spiritually. And so you rely upon things borrowed, you rely upon things from the past, and you try to present them as new, but you know internally that this isn't taking you to the same place. And so in that time, what began to mark my life is that I, I was feeling fraudulent. It's like I'm, I'm trying to say, here's how to walk with God. And yet I know it was taking me only so far. And there's no, there was nothing more I could point people to. Mm-hmm. And where I was, I didn't think was necessarily that attractive, but it's all I had to offer. So that was, that was for me a really disorienting time. So what was the, the bump in the road that brought you down that new direction? What was that spark? Yeah, so, so uh, there was a couple things. So I, I looked at myself in ministry and, and didn't feel terribly successful. I looked at my marriage and I didn't feel like I had the most the, the perfect marriage. I looked at my children. I have four children. Uh, my oldest at the time was going off to college. I didn't feel like a terribly good dad. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is the bump in the road is in all those things that I had marked myself and a lot of my sense of identity, marriage, work, parenting, I felt very much almost like a, I would say a failure. At I, was a, I felt like a failure. And so I remember my son at the time was uh, about seven or eight and I was at his bedside and, and I'm praying with him as I did with all my children. And in the middle of my prayer, I internally I'm saying, why are you even praying right now? You know, you're, it's, it's like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling and just coming right back on top of me. Wow. And I, uh, I knew something had to change. And I knew I couldn't continue in what for me felt that not being a person of integrity. And so the sense of failure and then asking for a week off of work to to get alone. And I I asked for a cabin in, in, in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. And I went up to that cabin not knowing if I was going to come back staying in ministry or or just kind of relinquishing it all and just say, I have to find something else to do. And so the, the long and short of that, and I won't go into all the details, is uh, I can't say God met me in a powerful way, but God met me in a real way. And where I was questioning, do I even have faith, what I sensed both affirmed from God is that faith is all that I've ever had. And all the other stuff was, was really secondary or tertiary. Mm. Can, can we dig into that just a little bit? What, what do you mean by the claim that faith is all that you ever had? Yeah, I think I equated faith by, by look at what I do. Okay, look at my achievements. Look, look at the identifiable markers, the, the roles I have. And I used to tell people, you know, follow me as I'm following Christ. Look just like me. And yet uh, I felt like all those things that I pointed to were not what was most important about me. What was most important about me was this, this place of faith of trust as I want to say as weak as it was 
it was something that I, I couldn't let go of. And that's all that seemed to, to me to, to really matter is that there was a, a, a call to trust or a desire, not even a call, that sounds too religious, a desire to trust in the midst of what for me was uh, uncertainty. Hmm. And so for me, faith was not going to be now tied to I'm a pastor or I'm a Christian dad. It was going to be tied to this this place of of me and you, God. Whether I ever experience in you again, God, this for me is the call of faith for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot. So would you say that your faith after this experience or after this realization that you had in the cabin— would you say your faith experience changed after that, or would you? Would you? And I guess a, a related question: Would you see it as a continuation of the same faith before that you're just more aware of, or would you see it as a kind of discontinuous thing where your faith took on a totally different nature? Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's. It can never be discontinuous. I think it, it's always whatever it is. It's something that marks how you understood it at that time in in your life. And so for me, when I say faith, for the first time, I was able to hold onto or at least embrace that I don't have to be certain on everything and that I don't have Mm -hmm. to be perfect on everything, that I can live with mystery. And really, it's actually in not being certain that, that faith is understood. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, the to use the, the 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 relationship that we have with our spouses. It's in the absence of our spouse that faithfulness is shown. Yeah, and That's and I good. saw that for me with God is it's in the absence of experiencing this relationship that faith is shown for me. Wow. So I know mm-hmm. I no longer needed like I had in the past, God, you have to meet me in this way, then I'll know what faith is. It was now able to live with that sense of mystery or uncertainty. So was it, could you say that before you got to that cabin in Rhinelander, you saw your faith as certainty, and that was almost a big part of the struggle is you you couldn't be certain because you didn't feel it, but what you actually transitioned into and graduated into an actual real understanding of what faith is. Yeah, a, a, a deeper, or it, it definitely seemed more real to me. Uh, you know, how many times have we said, oh, God, if you just show yourself to me this once in reality, I will never doubt you again. And, and so, and maybe God in his grace gives you that visionary moment. But as time goes on, our distance from that moment, we begin to say, was that real? <laughs> Did right. it really happen? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and we long for it again. And I guess what I'm saying is it's in the absence of now demanding that God show himself in those ways. I knew what I longed for was to continue on in, in faith. And and for me, my understanding of that is what marks me as a spiritual person because mm-hmm. I believe that is received. I don't think I think that is, and I can't explain it. It, it's, it. In some levels, it's this is inexplicable for me to be able to say that I, I receive faith. But all of a sudden, faith is was all that mattered to me. But it was no longer tied to how much I knew about God, how much I knew about building church, how much I knew about the role of being a pastor. I understood as faith as that which is something that marked my relationship with God. Would would it be fair to say that faith, as you're speaking about it, was a kind of willful, continued commitment to God in the face of uncertainty and maybe doubt and maybe the absence of a spiritual experience? Um, or yeah, would would faith, as you're describing it, require some kind of experience of the presence of God? How, how are those things related? Yeah, it's like the, uh, the the more we pursue the experience of God, the more elusive it sometimes it becomes. Yeah. 
And so I don't want to ever reduce faith for me as to an experience of God, a sensation of God, or an mm-hmm. argument or a theological view. Mm-hmm. Does it incorporate some of those things? Yes. So f- for me, it's almost about being less willful and more surrendered, mm-hmm. Let less, uh, less conviction and more trust. <laughs> And again, that's the, the the hard part for me to explain is I, I I remember at one time going and saying to God, I no longer want to defend you, God. I don't want to argue for you anymore. All I want is to know you. And when I remember saying that, all of a sudden, how I knew God <laughs> changed. It's like... Uh, I had all the arguments and I had all the theological constructs for God, but they could not bring me intimacy with God. Mm. And what brought me intimacy with God was now this place of, I trust you to do with me, to lead me as, as you desire. My posture is now just going to be one of trust. Mm-hmm. Did your... Uh what you described as the dark night of the soul, that kind of absence, did that continue or did that lift at the moment of this realization? Yeah. You know, you, you know, you, you look back and you say these things and it's like, Oh yeah, it just happened. No, that for me took a long time. Mm. There was this steady place of recognizing my longing for God, wanting to experience him and saying, I will trust you whether I experience you or not. I will, I, 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 I will, I will move towards a place of trust, and and the oddity, if, there, if this could be called odd, is in in when I got to that place of not trying to control my experience of God, then I began to see God. I began to see God in, in many different ways and in many different places. The Jesuits speak about the joy of their lives is to see God in everything. And there was this reality that I began to see God in things that I never saw. And I can't say it was willful as much as it was postured to trust, postured to be open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I, I struggle a little bit, Kyle, with the word willful because I it, sure. it, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't adequately cover it for me because it doesn't feel – I never want to say to somebody, it's about mustering up trust. Yeah. It's, it almost feels the opposite. It felt more mm-hmm. relinquishing. That's fair. Yeah. So what I'm after is there was a moment of decision. There, there was a, a, a willful in the sense that you, you exercised your volition in the absence of an experience, in the absence of certainty, you decided, I'm going to trust this. Right. You yeah, it, it. correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust this. And, and then there was, there was some, for me, addressing some things in my life at a, at a little bit more profound level, uh, a, a deeper level. There were patterns in my life of how I was relating to others. There was behaviors in my life that weren't changed from my 20s that I wanted to address and not just understand that in terms of a moral imperative, do this, don't do that, but understand what, what's going on in me. And learning to take what's going on with me and and bringing that to God and just saying, God, what is that about in me? And so that for me became the intentional part of learning new practices that allowed me to be present with my whole self within God and allowing God to do what God alone can do. It's good. So, Mark, because I know a bit of your journey, you didn't last at that church leadership position. How, 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 many, how long did it take for you to leave that? Yeah. Well, there were some practices for me that were, were becoming really central to my life, and uh, uh, both the practice of solitude, the, the role of silence, uh, of learning practices of stilling or centering prayer that I didn't want to teach in the church until they were fully integrated into my life. And so after about two to three years, I I finally felt freedom to begin to speak of some of these things. 
And as I spoke of some of the things that for me were central to, to continuing on in this journey, I, my view of leadership changed. Uh, I became more of a sense of, of discerning will together rather than saying, this is what I want. I'm, I'm the leader. Everybody follow me. It, it began to, to focus on let's, let's discover this and discern God's will together. So my view of leadership changed. And it changed because of those practices that I began to build into my life of learning to be alone with God in solitude and quiet. And that sounds a whole lot like Ruth Haley Barton. Yeah. Yeah, she was, you know, Kyle, you had mentioned what were some of the things that that were really essential. I knew I needed to change, but I also needed to recognize that I needed somebody to help me. And so the Transforming Center out out of Wheaton, Illinois with Ruth Haley Barton was central to that. So that was a gathering at the time of of about 65 different people, men and women in ministry, to learn about what are the practices that we can develop in our lives that create not burdensome rhythms to our life, but natural rhythms that keep us present to God. So I was a part of a a transforming community with these 65 people with her receiving instructions in spiritual practices and disciplines, but very different than how uh, I understood spiritual disciplines. Mm -hmm. They were much more whole person, much more integrated, and in in doing that, there was this now learning again how to posture myself to be present to God rather than orchestrating the experience to be something. So you 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 want you tried to bring those practices, those spiritual practices into the ministry, and I'm guessing that didn't fly. Well, with some people there was there was great reception towards, and for other people there was it was concerning. Uh, there was concerning about introducing meditative practices into the life of the church. So even though the church has a, has a long, long history, an ancient history with meditative practices, for, for some people, meditation seemed to, to hearken unto things that are, that are more Eastern in nature, Eastern religions. And so there was a fear that I was teaching things that began to really introduce people to Eastern religious practices. And there are some things that mark similarity, but there are also things that mark, I think, really uniqueness. And as I did that, that, that created for some people some, some concern for the things that I was asking people to participate in. How frustrating was that you're finding life finally, right? You've gone through this dark night of the soul. You're finally coming out of it and coming alive in those very practices and ancient traditions that you were holding to and discovering and finding life in are you're now you're being told you might be a heretic because of them. Yeah. All I can say is it's hard. There is what marks for me the spiritual journey that we're all on of moving from an external authority to a true internal. So because I I understand spirituality as the embodiment of the Godhead within me, to learn to trust that which is God doing in me rather than simply the voices that are outside of me. But as I began this journey, I realized how much people-pleasing, how much relying upon the authorities really gave me confidence. But it was a false confidence because I never learned to trust really, what is God at work doing within me? And is that work demonstrated or shown by the fruit of His Spirit in my life? And so that became for me what allowed me to continue on is to say, I I see you, God. I see the fruit of this Spirit in my life. And so I began to trust that and moved away from needing to please others or to only listen to others. And I'm not trying to say that I, I live in a vacuum here. I still have good counsel in my own life from, from godly people. But I learned to, to move from that over-reliance or over-dependence upon what is external to a true internal where the Spirit of God dwells and lives within me. When you refer to the authorities or the external things, what specifically do you have in mind? Yeah, well, you know, it can be many different authorities, uh, external. I've always been impressed with scholarship, so I, I loved reading commentaries on, on, on Scripture. And so that trusting of what 
they were understanding about scripture became what I presented to others regarding what scripture is saying. And I distrusted my own sense of what is God speaking through this and in me. So there was this reliance upon scholarship. I think there was reliance upon a variety of authority figures that mark our lives, uh, mm-hmm. both parental and in, in the workplace, our pastors that we trust and again, I'm not saying these are, are necessarily by any means wrong, but if we never get to a place of integrating this, this place of the Spirit dwelling in us and, and tr- learning to trust that because God dwells there, then we can constantly move from one place to the next, always looking for something to say, I can trust that, that's authoritative in my life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think people do that even with the Word of God. I think they can look at the Word of God as being authoritative, and, and I do, but they're always looking for somebody to tell them what the Word of God says. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they take great uh, confidence or assurance in this person can tell me what God's Word says and never get to that place of saying, I have read this for myself, and this Logos, this living Word, is speaking to me. And it it shows itself, not in everybody flying off in all these different directions, saying the Bible can mean whatever we want it to mean, but it really shows itself in a people who have a studied, measured, and a spirit-reflected posture towards life. So that's, I guess, if that's helpful to say, how yeah. what were the authorities? So for the other cerebral people in the audience like myself, what is spiritual direction? Can you just define that for us? Yeah, great. No, I, I I love it when people ask that because it's I need to compare it to how I understood my role as a pastor, as a discipler of men and women. And so if being up for me, pastor and a discipler was about, here's what I've learned and let me pass it on to you, the learner. Spiritual direction says, I seek to be in a posture of prayer with you, with God, honoring the work that God is doing in your life. I don't pretend that I know all that God has been doing in your life, but I do want to be with you as you are seeking to respond to the call of faith in your life. So it's less about teaching or talking about theology as much as what is your experience of your theology teaching you about you and God. And that's the hard part. Because the role is not to teach, even though there's elements of teaching in it, the goal of spiritual direction is to help this person honor the call of faith in their life. Mm-hmm. And, and to do that through a posture of, of prayer and, and, and listening and, and being present with somebody as they are speaking and, and talking about their, what is their experience of God. Yeah. So what you just said has shed some light on my next question, but I want to ask it anyway, just to make it concrete. So how would you say that spiritual direction or maybe spiritual formation, I don't know if that's an okay substitute, how would you say that is like or different from moral formation or moral growth, growth as a person of character? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great question because I think there are things that mark similarities. Obviously, when I think of spiritual direction and moral values shape our, our choices, I think for me what marks spiritual direction from moral development is spiritual direction ties all that is going on to its source, which is God. I don't think you necessarily have to believe in God or be a Christian to be moral. It'll be good news for all our atheist listeners. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and and plenty of people who who just look at human beings relating to other human beings develop a very high standard moral living. But for me, spiritual formation ultimately has its source within God and its culmination within God. And so it sees the direction moving towards communion with God. And so if my source and my means and the culmination of faith is communion with God, then living out of that communion, I believe we reflect back upon this world that which is from that communion. 
and 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 that is moral in nature but it's it's not trying to be moral it's simply Mm -hmm. i believe drawing close to that which we are called into communion with or community with yeah it's not merely moral it involves connection with a person Correct. Uh, a, di- a divine person in a way that morality wouldn't require. So w- would you say that that communion that you're describing, what is the experiential component of that communion? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's really great. I believe th- the experiential part of it is a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of, of unity or of union a sense of participation. I think all those things for me are the overflow of my, what I believe is the communion that I have with God. So it's, it's, it's a know, knowing God that isn't reducible to me to a single definition. Mm-hmm. Like I can tell you, I experience love but every time I try to produce that to say, how do you experience love from God? It, it makes mm-hmm. it become really trivial to me. And, and, and yet I, I will say that I know God and in knowing God, I love God. And I am known by God and loved by God. There is a sense of connectedness that I have, that mm-hmm. I continue to live my life in light of that connection. Yeah. So that's, uh, I don't know if that answers your question. It's, there's, there is for me, there is a mysterious element or a, 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 I want to say a very mystical element to all relationships. I don't know if you're a married guy, but even when you begin to say, how do you know your wife or your spouse loves you? When you begin to reducing it to things they do or say, mm-hmm. it, all of a sudden it goes, Wow. It, it 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 kind of almost trivializes a little bit, and in the same way, when I when I try to describe this with God, it, it, it trivializes it to me when I move into saying too much that I know God because He loves me, and how do I know He loves me? Yeah, I, what I really like about your answer um, is is that the description that you gave of the experiential aspect, everything you said could be embodied in a community of humans. It could all be experienced through other people and nothing you said requires like hearing God's voice or uh, experiencing a tangible presence of like Jesus in your room. Because many Christians, as you yourself experienced, go their whole life without ever experiencing anything like that. And it would be very sad if the kind of communion you're talking about was just unavailable to those people. So I really loved your answer actually because it, di- it didn't require that kind of qualitative experience great yeah mark can i ask because i've just been kind of listening and coming from a an evangelical background uh you know the evangelical free church was my was my upbringing and all of this the the notion of spiritual direction the sound it sounds beautiful and this type of input into one's life feels like it could be a really necessary thread and yet i never heard of this this wasn't you know it was the the centrality of the word and and uh, involvement in church and it, there's mm-hmm. there's all of the the structures that are very familiar why isn't this one of them particularly yeah. in the context of the evangelical tradition yeah well the, the evangelical church is that is the newest kid on the block <laughs> they are the, the they are the, the newest branch within the long and and, and uh, wonderful tree of the church and so we we are the kind of the youngest and then and, and even then it has been further so there's there's not a lot of things that that mark what really is the evangelical tradition uh and so uh it's not a part of what has been how we have practiced and yet i would say almost intuitively that those who both walk with god and continue to walk with god for a lifetime begin to be able to be present with people in a posture, not simply of only teaching or pointing to the same old things we always were pointed to, but learning to help people to discern the work of the Spirit in their lives for themselves. And, and that, to me, ties it to something that is very ancient. 
So yes, it is new to, it's not within our tradition. It is curious to me though, as, as now I love watching what's taking place in both seminaries and Bible colleges all over. And, and so the rave when I was in both college and, and university was all about disciple making. And now the, the language is moving towards understanding formation and spiritual formation. And quite a few seminaries now I know are offering coursework in spiritual direction mm -hmm. as part of how they are training those who are entering the ministry. Uh, so it's new. You're, you've talked about something, you know, the evangelical tradition is the youngest as far as the way of Jesus in the last 2,000 years. Can you trace the thread for us of what I would call, I don't know what you would call it, I'd be interested in what you would call it, but a contemplative journey, the contemplative way more of a mystical approach to God and a journey with God. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of a framework for that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I can quite do that, but I'll try to try to explain it as as best I can. When I think of a, both a contemplative spirituality or, or those who look at the world in a contemplative way or uh, understanding spiritual formation, contemplation is is for me, I think it was Richard Rohr who said, a long loving gaze at what is real. And, and looking at what is real is not just simply looking at this from God being most real, it is that, but it's looking at other human beings as being real and looking at the world that we live in as being real. So a contemplative spirituality is a long, loving gaze at what is real. And when we do that, what we find is not our difference, but our communion with that which is real. And in finding that communion, now our posture moves from saying, I'm not about simply being present with you so I can convert you, change you, teach you. It's so that I can practice, ultimately, a form of compassion or communion with another person. Yeah, before you go on, I just want to take a moment to just take that in. A long, not just a long gaze, but a long loving gaze at that which is real, um, because all of most of my gazes are a long judgmental gaze <laughs> at something or a long critiquing gaze, whether it's myself, right, first and foremost, in the world around me, the other political party, the other religious traditions, atheists, whatever it is, it's critiquing, it's judgmental. And can, as I say that, as you said, a long loving gaze at that which is real, and then I think about long cr critiquing gaze, a long Mm -hmm. cynical gaze, a long judgmental gaze, it just tells me how depleted are our souls when something like a long loving gaze at that which is real seems so striking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it is. It is striking. It allows us to say I can be with somebody recognizing difference but never separation. Hmm. And that, that gets tested every time we recognize somebody has a very different either theological view or worldview than us, is to say, can I recognize there is difference or distinction, but never separation from this person? That's that long, loving gaze at what is most real. And what is most real is, however I see this person, is that we share a great deal in common with. And... Uh, for me, that's, that's the, the hard work, so to speak, of spiritual growth is to be able to say, I don't always have to be right. I don't always have to be in control. And I don't have to be the one in power. Mm -hmm. Because when I think I have to be right, my gaze towards someone is judgmental. Or when I have to be the one who is in control, it's because I see these things going on and I'm going to change them. But when we learn to relinquish power control and even being on the right side, we begin to allow ourselves to see other people. Would you stop scolding me, Mark, and us Enneagram 8s? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have a really hard question that's not on the outline we sent you. <laughs> we can totally cut this out if you're unhappy with how this goes. Um, but what you were just saying made me think of it. Um, and it's something I, I admit I personally struggle trying to understand. It's one of the, one of the really the core aspects of Christianity that I that I have a hard time with 
these days. And that is, how does that, I don't know if you'd want to call it an obligation or an injunction or something that's normative for the Christian, that thing that you just described of relinquishing power, how does that apply to people who are already socially disempowered? Yeah. So, um, for example, there have been some feminist philosophers and feminist theologians who have written about the harm that that kind of teaching does, and this teaching is found in the Scripture itself. So this is a core aspect of Christianity. You can't just remove it. The harm that that does to people who are already in a position of weakness to be told that they have to somehow make a virtue out of the kind of weakness that's already been forced upon them and give forgiveness to the powerful, that sort of thing, that this is actually harmful. The feminist theologians put it much more eloquently, but hopefully you get the the sense of the kind of issue that I'm struggling with here. So could you speak to that at all? I realize that's really heavy and difficult, but... Yeah, let me see if I can try to... What, what you're asking is, to those who are disempowered right now, how does this language of seeing in common empower them? Yeah. And, and that, and also how does it avoid continuing to disempower them? Yeah. 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 I, I don't know if I have a great answer for, for that, to be quite honest. Uh, but, I, but I like that you're, you're making me really think, <laughs> think on my feet. So again, so much for me of understanding spiritual growth is tied towards this understanding of myself within God. And in living in that place for a place of communion, in a place of communion connected to my source, I stand on that which is my true ground and which I live and move and have my being. Now, are there other things that as I grow that I have learned to stand on as well? And the answer to that is, yes, I've learned to stand upon being right of acting in power, of controlling what I can. And to some extent, for me, all those are tied to very much what is my, my ego being defined by that which marks right or power or control. For me, the spiritual journey in relinquishing that to finding all that within God doesn't mean that uh, I don't exercise power. I just no longer default to it or default to take control. What I do is in that place of being within God, I recognize those who are disenfranchised and disempowered, and I seek to do those things that would empower them. But I know that their journey is a similar one to mine, that they too will need to let go of power of control and and that ability to 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 change things or to be on the right side of things if they are going to continue in the journey does, does that make sense so mm-hmm. so there are there are times when my my language is really strong against things that mark people who are exploited or people mm-hmm. who are dismissed or judged to be inferior my language can be really strong, but it's not just defaulting to what I used to rely upon to say, I'm right here, and you need to think exactly like I do, and you too can be right. What I'm defaulting to instead or seeking to is from that place of sharing in common with all people, both empowering people, stepping aside, and also at times stepping forward. Mm-hmm. And for me, now that you're saying this, I think the, the imagery for me is, is, is of Christ, because it says that, that all authority had been given to him by God to lay down his life and to take it back up again. And so the call for all of us in, who follow in his footsteps is to say, what does it mean to lay this down? And what does it mean to take it back up again? But when we lay it down, we're, we're laying it down from a place of, of seeking or reflecting communion with him. And when we pick it back up this life, we do it from a place of communion with God as well. So it has allowed me to, to be more courageous at times than I ever have been in my life. 
And it has allowed me to be silent at times, and I don't need to say anything. Whereas both of those, being bold, I would have said, that's going to tell everybody what I think and how I'm right. And that's going to really make me an important person. Some of that I've had to let go of. In fact, all of that I've tried to let go of in some sense. Mark, uh, switching directions a little bit. Um, I know firsthand that you use the Enneagram as part of your spiritual direction practice. Why is that? Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, I love this question, really, that you ask why. And also, I suppose, what is it for, for listeners that might not be familiar? Yeah, an oversimplification of it, the Enneagram is, is, is a tool that helps us to understand ourselves. One of, the, one of the things that has historically been a part of the church, the early church onto the present day, is how a, a knowledge of self is actually a complementary means for understanding God or understanding something of God, not all of God, but something of God. Augustine said, uh, oh Lord, grant me that I would know myself that I may know thee. And you go, oh wow, he was saying something really profound there about knowing ourselves. And you see that all throughout the church, that a strong self-awareness, a strong knowledge of who I am corresponds to an awareness of God. They're complementary. They go together. And that makes sense when we understand that we are Imago Dei, when we are made in His image, created in His image, that something by even just looking at how human beings interact is going to say something true of God. So why I like the Enneagram is because I believe it helps us to become aware of how we act, how we think, how we feel. And it does it by shining, I think, four kind of lenses on an individual. And it asks you to look through those lenses when you look at yourself. And so if the first lens that we can look at in a four-paned window is the lens of what everybody sees when they look at you and what you see when you present yourself to others. The Enneagram helps you to see how you present yourself to others and how others generally see you. But there's another pain that we don't often like to look at, and that is that pain, that window pain or that lens that says, uh, these are things that I'm blind to in my life, that I don't see about me, but others do see in me. If you're familiar with the Navigator's ministry, Dawson Trotman said years ago to his co-workers when he was founding the Navigators, if you could tell me one true thing about me and you were assured that I wouldn't be defensive, what would you tell me about me? And he asked it with a great deal of humility. And I loved it because he's trying to get at that idea of what he was blind to. Because he recognized that there are things that mark his life that he's blind to. Well, that's the first. There's the open lens, the the blind lens. There's also a a third lens, and that's the things that we hide about ourselves, that we know about us that other people don't see. We don't let them see it. And then the fourth lens is the lens that really marks our undergoing that we may not even have language for that is still unknown to us. What the Enneagram helps us to do is to see ourselves in all those lenses, things that we're blind to, things that we're open to, and things that we hide, and begin to dialogue with somebody on those as a way of understanding the self and knowing ultimately God. That's why I love the Enneagram. It's not a it's not a, a, a pick me up type look at yourself. It it has you understand yourself not in terms of just simply your virtue, but also the other side of it, your vice. And explore that in a way that's largely, I think, non-judgmental, but helps you to see yourself accurately. Well, I took it yesterday and I feel great about myself. <laughs> <laughs> It told me I'm inquisitive and investigative and funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It must be a five. <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> uh, so Kyle is a proud skeptic and uh, hater of the Enneagram. Let's not say, say proud. It's just a fact okay. that I am a skeptic. <laughs> so before before he fires, fires a few uh, shots at it, let me ask. This is just an observation. Tell me if you think I'm right, Mark. But... There seems to be a lot of pop culture Enneagram engagement. And by that, I mean, there's all these free 
assessments out there that may or may not be good. And then you learn your number and it's cool and it's a conversation piece, but that's all you ever do with it. And there's, it's just a very shallow experience with the Enneagram. Is that actually, can that be destructive rather than actually doing it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of f- in favor of, of any tool that helps us to understand ourselves. Okay. So whether it's the Myers-Briggs or a DISC test or strength finders or any number of different tests, I love those things that raise our, our level of awareness. So the, the, the danger for me of, the, of, the, of, of what I see popularized right now with the Enneagram is people are defining themselves by their number. Uh, and what the Enneagram really at its core is trying to say is, you know, you're, you're this number, but you're not this number. You are actually something more. Hmm. All right. And so to be in that place of Mago Day, of created new in Christ, is to step into that. So what the Enneagram will show you is not only how you have learned to navigate life, but also how you're limited by it. And if you are to continue in this journey of growth in your life, at some point you have to address those ways that it limits you. And uh, I love it for its dialogue. So, you know, do, I, do you have to use it? No, I just love it as a tool that helps me to, to talk to people about three core passions and to do that without judgment. And so to talk to people about anger, anxiety, and fear. Wow. And, and to do that freely is one of the things that I love about it. I think Randy wants me to tear into you now. No, I don't want you to tear into him. <laughs> I love Mark too much, but do you have any questions, Kyle? Um, believe it or not, Randy, I hate to disappoint you here, but as Mark has just presented this, I have no objections. <laughs> I actually, actually really respect this. Um, yeah. I'm I'm skeptical about other aspects of it, but you haven't exhibited or uh, asserted any of those aspects, and so uh, I don't have any direct uh, objections to you, and I don't want to necessarily turn the podcast into a, say what's wrong with the enneagram in general. Yeah, I it, I mean, it, it, it's a tool, and I, I use yeah. it as a, as a as a tool for dialoguing. The question for me is often when you talk to people uh, about themselves, the human capacity to be deceptive, to to not look honestly at ourselves, is is mm-hmm. pretty profound. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it's nice to have a, a little bit of a tool that can say, you know, that this core quality, core passion for five, six, and sevens on the Enneagram is fear. I'm wondering where you have fear in your life or Mm -hmm. how much fear is directing your desire to get more. Yeah. And so long as, so long as in, in, in an exchange like that, the person is free to get to a place where they recognize that there isn't any fear. So long as that is still a legitimate option that's on the table, then I'm okay with it. It's not like the, let me give you an example of what I would not be okay with, the sort of church context that I used to exist in within a certain kind of Pentecostal form of evangelicalism. Anytime someone exhibited something other than what was viewed as the paradigm of faith, and, and, and often there were evidences that were supposed to go along with that, like your life was supposed to exhibit certain characteristics if you were faithful. And then if they didn't exhibit those characteristics, there was something wrong with you. And all of the focus of the church then was to figure out what it was that you did wrong, why you don't have enough faith in these specific concrete ways, etc. So the kind of abuse that I see in the area of, of this, this aspect of the Enneagram could be that if I, as a five, don't actually see any fear in my life— Mm-hmm. then I should be allowed to just move on without trying to find where the fear is. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And even when I look at the role of spiritual direction, my, the role of spiritual direction is not to create fear, it, but it is to say, okay, when there is fear, how are you responding to it? Mm-hmm. How do, how, when, when you name your fears or your desires to God, how do you hear God speaking? Or how do you sense God leading uh, mm-hmm. in light of those fears or desires? So, my whole interaction with it is to say, if it's not broken, don't fix it. I mean, if yeah. it's broken, let's, let's address it. So what is your experience of God? What is your experience of, of really your theology? Where mm-hmm. is it taking to you? And if it's taking you to good and wonderful and high and beautiful places, 
super. Yeah. But if it's also taking you to a place of, of sometimes feeling trapped, stuck, not free, at some point we have to, to say to continue this journey, we have to address that. Yeah. What's interesting, it, Kyle, is that if you would have asked me a year ago before I encountered the Enneagram and received spiritual direction, um, what are, what's my main areas of brokenness? I would have listed a few areas that were obvious that are, you know, I would have mentioned, you know, lust, or maybe I have a few too many drinks sometimes, or, you know, whatever. The standard, I swear, I have a struggle with that. You don't struggle with it. You're great at it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very um, proficient. <laughs> but I would not have mentioned anger as as a, a main primary area of brokenness. I would have said, I'm a very loving person, actually. Now I can get a little hot, but no, I'm, I'm a loving person. And what I've discovered in this year-long journey that is just the beginning is that probably my main area of brokenness is anger, and I just wasn't aware of it. And I'm becoming more and more aware of it, and I see it more and more, and it's so blaring, so damn obvious, you know, now, that, but I would, have never, I would have never seen it. And now I can actually see and sense and feel and hear invitations out of it even in the moment when I'm giving myself to it. So I will say, even if it doesn't feel like maybe fear is a thing, mm. air it out, let it, let it, let it come to the surface a little bit. Sure. That's yeah. So fun. to be clear, I'm not claiming that I have no fear in my life, right? There might be some that's subconscious or whatever. I'm just make, using that as an illustration of, I don't want to shoehorn people into, you have to find this specific thing about you or you're missing something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the goal of that then would be able to try to help that person in spiritual direction to understand and see some things that mark patterns of how they are relating to others, relating to God, relating yeah. to this world, that you can now say, okay, what is that bringing to you? Mm-hmm. And where also may it be limiting you? Yeah. Uh, because it, it's, it's not hard to look at any of the nine virtues that make up the Enneagram and, and go, wow, th- those are really good things. So you call them virtues. That's interesting in, in most of my admittedly brief research. Um, they're, they're variously called, I mean, sometimes virtues, but more often than not, they're called just types that can be good or bad in various circumstances. And sometimes they're called sins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it's just really interesting how people approach it so differently. Yeah, and, and, and so for me, my, when I was trained with it, the, the, to be in the image of God is to be able to say that God, there is a moral nature that marks being human. And so how do we see that manifested in those nine virtues and why there are nine? That's a, that's a complicated thing. Why? Sure. It's an interesting thing, but it is. you're right. Complicated. But to be able to say there are virtues that mark it, but, but to be able to see our virtue and, and we've known this intuitively that the thing that often marks our strengths is often our weakness as well. Mm-hmm. Are we able to face that? Sure. In my in my life, I I would never have told you that I was an anxious person. I would have told you that I'm practicing self-control. And that's how I kind of always got through when I felt anxious. I always used the energy of my anxiety to do something remarkable to, or to mm-hmm. attempt to do something remarkable. But I was not aware of my own sense that what I'm experiencing here is anxiety. And then the deeper reality of that anxiety was how much I relied upon both people pleasing or people telling me I have value to know how to navigate life. And even to be able to go back to what you initially asked me, Randy, of when those things that we have used throughout our life to tell us who we are, all of a sudden get exposed, then we have to ask the question, well, who am I really? And to me, that's when we step into the true ground of our being within God. Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Storyhill BKC for their support. Storyhill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryHillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC. And if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryHillBKC.com. 
So, Mark, as we wrap up this time together, I want to turn towards our listeners. Two things. What are just a couple of practices, disciplines, ways, methods that anybody can use to to kind of become more aware of our inner lives and our soul and care for our soul and become aware of our soul even? What are What would you say? Yeah, I think one of the first ones is is to recognize how beautifully and wonderfully we are designed by God just in living a, in a body on this planet. And so learning to pay attention to ourselves in the body is a wonderful exercise and a spiritual practice that anybody can practice at any time during the day. And to do that is to just allow ourselves to be still and to pay attention. And this time we're paying attention to, and if we could just put it into three categories just for the sake of simplicity, what is my body sensing, what am I feeling, and what am I thinking? There is a reality that all of us go through every day sensing, thinking, and feeling, but we don't recognize the speed at which we move through a sensation or a feeling into a thought and how they give either stimulus or birth to the other. And so the simple practice of slowing down and paying attention to our bodies, what am I sensing on my body right now? I I, I love the idea of just simply recognizing that I have five senses and what are the senses experiencing right now, and seeing that as a spiritual practice, that God has gifted me with senses. But then to know where my thoughts begin to drift towards when I become aware of my senses, where they begin to focus on, and does that thought create a feeling? And then when you have that sensation, that thought, and that feeling, to learn to just be with that with God and ask God, what's that about? And as you learn to do that, you'll be surprised at how much God, I believe, leads and pushes and, and, and prompts within you regarding the things that are really vital to living life well. So that's, that's one that I would say is learn to pay attention to your own life in the body that God has given to you. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. I found myself today even... I had, we had our staff meeting today and I was a little bit overwhelmed by all the things on my to-do list and all the things that I have to, you know, weeks down the road, think of and plan for and found myself getting very anxious mm-hmm. and my thoughts were bouncing around. It was, I felt yeah. schizophrenic, but having the practice of being able to slow, pause, breathe, releasing those things. And then even being able to take a walk and do a checklist of, yep, no, that's okay. And oh, no, that'll be, that'll be fine. To be able to still and be aware of what's going on inside is just, that's, that's a, that's a fun time. That's. Yeah. And that's really an interesting thing, Randy, because, you know, if a person is extroverted and feels overwhelmed, generally they let people know around them. They verbalize that. They bring that into the external world. Whereas an introvert maybe say, you know, uh, I'm feeling overwhelmed and nobody needs to know that. But the key is, are we aware that that's what we're experiencing? All right. So that this, this patterned response of when I overwhelm, here's what I do. I'm learning to say, oh, I have more than one choice here. I I can actually be aware of it and move to do something that reflects, I think, being in step with the Spirit of God. And I love that you're able to do that. Yep. So as we finish our time, Mark, you usually begin and end our times with what you call spiritual direction, where you're directing me to calm and still myself. Could you do that for us right now? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a stilling prayer or a centering prayer. And if you'd let me do that with you, I'd like to do that. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is first just to be really comfortable in your chair with your, your feet on the floor and then to close your eyes. And then to allow yourself to take a deep stilling or a centering breath to breathe deeply. And as you are breathing, to let your 
breath be an affirmation of your life and that God wants you here. And so as you breathe, to hold thankfulness for that breath and for your life. And as you are breathing, to pay attention to the life that God has given you in this body and what your body is sensing right now. And if there's any places of tension or tightness or even pain, to not to push that away, but to connect your breath to your body and just allow those places to come to ease or to be relaxed. And sometimes it's easier to still our body and much harder to still our thoughts. And so just for this moment, I want to ask you just to allow your thoughts to be either handed over to God or to allow them just to move on and to let it be enough to be still before God with nothing to fix, nothing to solve, And if you find yourself, your thoughts taking captive again and running in a certain direction, just gently allow yourself to focus in on your breath. And to be thankful. Amen. Amen. Oh man. We were we were planning to do record another episode after this, but I may just go to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a remarkable thing that even when they've done study on, on the human body and what is actually it begins to produce when when thankfulness is held within the heart, that there's actually healing agencies and serotonin and, and all these beautiful things that begin to circulate through your body because you held thankfulness. Mm -hmm. And so it's just not a mind thing. It's, it's a reality of embodied spirituality that we can move into the presence of God and be thankful. And that can have wonderful, I think, healing effects on our own bodies. Good. Well, Mark Werner, Thank you so much for taking time and joining us and letting me share you with our listeners. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you for letting me be here with you guys. It's It's been a, been fun for me. I was a little anxious uh, about how, how this was going to go, but you guys made it pretty delightful. Thank you. Thanks for spending this time with us. We really hope that you're enjoying these conversations as much as we are. And if you are, help us get the word out. Before you close your podcast app, leave a rating or a review. That helps new listeners find us, maybe for the first time. If you'd like to share the episode you just heard with a friend or a family member, you can find those links on our social media pages. You can also find us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. And that's going to work well for you, whether you're a kind enough person to financially support us out of the goodness of your heart, or if you're just looking for merch or the chance for a private tasting. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.